Great to see you this morning. A little chilly. The weather has definitely turned on us. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8 and 9. If you want to go ahead and flip this, it's going to be our last one in Acts. And then we're going to move on to a few different things. And then just to give you a heads up, um, as we kind of move into the new year and into January and February, we are going to be um, running through the book of Ephesians. So you might just kind of get prepared for that. If you want to read before us, you can. Um, and kind of start getting your, your heart ready for, uh, for the book of Ephesians. Acts chapter 8 and 9. It's going to take us just a second to get there, but that's where we are going to spend this morning. You know, it's a funny thing if you think about, like, how, how do you see inside of a person's heart? You know, that's kind of a, a, an interesting question. Like, how do you know the inside of a person? And uh, like, here's what I've noticed about that, that the most effective way to see underneath the surface, like underneath the covering of a person, is not necessarily to ask a lot of questions, not necessarily to poke and prod a lot, but the most effective way to get underneath the surface of somebody is just to listen. I, you, you've probably heard this said, that you're, like your eyes are the window of your soul, Right? Um, I think it could also be said that your words are the window to your soul. And so the, the Bible is going to say in Matthew that out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. Like you, you speak, the words flow out. And so your words give a great snapshot of what you love. And so all you have to do is listen. And what, what comes to the surface in conversation is what dominates a person's heart. Whether that is athletics, whether that is hunting, whether that is your hobby, whatever it is, whatever dominates the conversation on a consistent basis is the thing that is central, the point, the primary part of your life. And so words are very revealing for us. Okay, now that is also true of churches. What churches value, really, is going to come out in your words. Like what you, what you really hold up is central. The heart of a church really is going to be seen most effectively by just listening to people. The past, just listening to people talk. Okay, now, this is interesting to me. I, okay, I've been in full frontal, like, over my head ministry for the last eight years. And, and here is the interesting thing that I have heard over and over again from this isn't just like one pastor. This is like the, the gamut of, of guys kind of full on in ministry and people who come in and out of church on a weekly basis. Th- this has become the new measurement for what we really value in church. It's really interesting. Um, in, in eight years of ministry, I bet you I've been asked this question. I'm not joking. 200 times, maybe more. It goes like this. How many do you run? How, how many people are in there? And, and here's, here's what I think that reveals in us. That, that really how we have come to judge success in church world is how many people can you get in your place? That has become the new measurement of success. It's a crazy thing. Now, okay, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt here. Um, I, I question motives when I hear that, you know, like there's a little bit of me that questions, okay, what exactly are you like, you know what I'm saying? Like, so there's a motive that's really scary there, but there is a motive that's good. I could, so I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt and, and just go with the motive that's good here. And the motive that's good goes like this. We want to reach people with the gospel. That's a good motive, right? We would all say that is a worthwhile, good motive to have. We want to expand because we want the gospel to get out. There are a A ton of people in this area. Just take the DFW Metroplex in general. There are a ton of people outside the kingdom, outside the gospel. 
A ton of them. So we want to make sure the gospel gets out. So it's not that it's a bad question. Like the, the question could be good with the right motives underneath it. And the motive of we want the gospel to reach people, to penetrate hearts. Like if you look in the book of Acts, and this is why I would say that that question's not all bad. You look in the book of Acts and in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches this powerful sermon. It says 3,000 people get saved. It's very, like, it's detailed. Like, it's tracking a number for us. Okay, you go into Acts chapter 4, Peter preaches again, people get saved. It says 5,000 people get saved. Okay, now that's talking men in both of those. So by the fourth chapter of Acts, Luke, the writer of Acts, is wanting you to know that accompanied to this movement of Jesus... Like this thing is rolling here and it is rolling with a lot of people behind it. There is momentum that has come in people that have gotten behind this thing. So he's wanting you to know up front that by like four chapters into this thing, there's over 10,000 people, men, women, that, that have jumped in. So, so there's this number. So, okay, he's making this point of we, we want the gospel to get out. That is a good question. But okay, now listen to me when I say this. If that is the only question... You're like on the tip of the cliff that could be your death. If that's the only question that's asked. Um, let me read this quote. Right now, I'm reading this guy named A.W. Tozer. I'd recommend it. If you're wanting a read that's going to make you think a little bit, I'd recommend you grabbing some of this guy and reading him. And this is what I came across this week. And it fit just perfectly into where we were going this morning. He says this. The first look of the church is toward Christ, who is her head, her Lord and her all. So he's saying this, that the first look of a church, it's got to be centered on Jesus. That is the primary thing here. After that, she, the church, must be, and he uses these two words, self-regarding and world-regarding. And it's going to be up on the screen for you here too, if you, if you want to follow along. With a proper balance between the two. The task of the church is twofold. And here's the world-regarding task here. The, the task of the church is twofold. Number one, to spread Christianity throughout the world. That, that's task number one. We want the gospel out. If you are a believer in Jesus, a follower of, of Jesus, then there's got to be something in your heart that says, I want the gospel to get out. And I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, but there is a drastic amount of the world who does not have a gospel witness. Uh, of the roughly six or seven billion people on, on the planet right now, over two billion of them, like 2.4, have never heard an accurate gospel. KLTY is not playing this morning there. There is not a Bible they're going to open up and be able to read in their language. Never heard an accurate gospel. There has got to be something in us that says we want the, the world to know the gospel. We want to get that out. Okay, but he goes on to say, and so that's the first one, this world regarding approach. And the second task is to make sure that the Christianity, the church spreads, that she spreads is the pure New Testament kind of Christianity. Okay, he goes on. The popular notion, I want you to listen to this phrase, the popular notion that the first obligation of the church is to spread the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth is false. Her, the church's first obligation is to be spiritually worthy to spread it. Now, now listen to these, these words. This is going to be um, Jesus talking to the Pharisees. Listen to what he says here. The terrible words of Jesus haunt my soul. And th these are Jesus' words coming up. You travel, talking to these Pharisees, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert. So you go like you are all over the place. Like you are to the people who have no gospel and you're taking your brand there and you're making converts there. Okay, and then listen to what he says. 
I mean, this ought to like, stir, like this scares me when I read it. Okay, listen to what he says here. He says, um, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, when he becomes what you're giving, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. That stings. Okay, so here's the point. The first obligation before we can spread is to make sure that what we're spreading is worth spreading. Does that make sense? The first obligation is to make sure our gospel is correct, that it's biblical. Here's the idea. We can grow a huge church and not grow the kingdom. You can have a huge church that Satan would smile at. And here's what drives me crazy. I think most people in ministry would take a big church even if Satan smiles at it. And may that never be us. May we be the sort of place that has the right message to spread. That makes sure our message is biblical, it's authentic, it's correct, it's gospel-centered, that it's right. I mean, I mean okay, can we go there? That may we be the sort of place that, okay, we want to spread. We want to grow. But we want to grow the kingdom, amen? Not our kingdom. Okay, that's the point. Now, here's where we're going this morning. This is going to take us into Acts chapter 9. There's nowhere in, in kind of Christian circles right now in America that the water has become more muddled and more confusing than this issue of what it means to be converted or what it means to be saved. Um, Okay, now this isn't like just an our generation question or an American question. In in Matthew 7, Jesus is talking to these people. He's drew them up on this mountainside. He's sitting here talking to them, and he's going to make this really scary statement at the end of it. Um, He's going to say that, uh, um, okay, on the last day, like when you stand before me, here's what's going to happen to a lot of people. They're going to say, but didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Like, didn't we do all these mighty works in your name? And then, I mean, these scary words come back. I, I, I think this is Jesus saying, yeah, you did all of these things, but you're just missing the primary. You're just missing me. I mean, you're doing all these beautiful things. You just don't have me. And so th- this isn't like a new, qu- this is an old question that, that every generation needs clarified and every church needs clarified consistently. Okay, so, so let, me, let me maybe start with maybe these two illustrations of, of what I'm getting at here. Um, I, I'm in seminary, but this is about five years ago. We're doing the seminary thing. I, I'm an all-day Monday guy. I get there at 7.45, and I'm there till after 9 o'clock. And a guy that's working with me at the time, his name was Jason Brewer. He's doing the seminary thing as well. And one night, we're coming back. It's 9.30. It's dark. It's, it's kind of nasty weather, kind of like it was this morning. Um, it's raining a little bit, cold, all that. And now let me give you a quick aside with Jason. Um, Jason is one of those guys, like let's say he's going to pick you up at your house. And you're standing on the curb. You know how most people would just kind of gently take the corner, come to your house, nicely pull up. Stop, come to a gentle stop. You get in, they kind of gently pull off. That's not Jason. Jason is the guy that he does 55 around the corner, right? Okay, now he gets to you and he never just comes to a nice simple stop. Here's the typical stop that he would do. You're on the curb and he's coming right at you, 55. He's not very far away, a couple of houses down right now. And you're thinking, he's literally about to run over me. 
Okay, he gets like one house down, still doing 55. He slams on the emergency brake. Slam, like he's doing the whole, like Dukes of Hazard is here. Okay, now when he stops, the back end would fishtail around and somehow it, like, it's right there. It's a foot in front of you. Perfect. I'm like, bro, you have missed your calling. That takes skill to do that. That's Jason. Okay, we're driving down the road. We're in his, like a 1995 Sentra. Literally, this car was worth about $500 after it got the new paint job, all right? So we're coming down I-20 going 70 miles an hour. And nasty, rainy, cold, all that, we lose control. He loses, he loses control, all right? I'm in the passenger seat freaking out at this moment. He loses control. We're doing 70 down I-20. The next thing I know, literally, we are facing backwards, still out of control going down I-20. Now, this is one of those, oh my gosh, adrenaline everywhere, emotional. Like, we kind of have this moment somewhere in there of like, bro, you need to tell my wife I love her. He wasn't married. I'll tell your dog you love her. You know, like we had that moment in the middle of all this. And, uh, and so we're doing, like, literally, we are going backwards down I-20, out of control. When the car finally gets traction, we come to a skidding halt, and we are looking at oncoming traffic. Luckily, there wasn't a whole lot of it. And here's what happens at the end of that. Um, we put the car in drive, turn around, and we drive off. Now, he, here's the thing that I think most of us would see here. Um, I, I think that's how a lot of our quote-unquote conversion experiences go. We have a real adrenaline-filled emotional moment. Now, listen to me. That at the end, we jump back in our car, our life, and we drive off like nothing happened. Amen? Um, five, uh, this, I'm probably 20, 21 at this point. I'm, uh, I think a sophomore in college, probably 20. Um, I'm going up with four guys. We're leaving from Norman, going to Oklahoma city. We were driving down an interstate again, um, smoke flash in front of us. We stop with the first ones on the scene. Um, I get out and it is chaos. Um, I look over here and there's this little white car. She's obviously hurt. Um, two of the guys in our car go over to this car and I go to this pickup. It's in front of us and it's obviously rolled several times. It is smashed. I literally, I'm looking at the car and it's thinking, I might find somebody dead in here. Um, so I walk up to this pickup and I just start kind of yelling, Hey, anybody in there? That sort of a thing going on. Um, not knowing what I'm about to find. I get up to the windshield. It's completely splintered and, and kind of fractured. You can't really see through it. So now I'm like right up to the window, um, windshield, and I'm hollering still, doing all that. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a guy moves real quick. You talk about scared to death. I thought I just died right there with him. And so he moves real quick. Um, he, he's obviously hurt, kind of confused. He crawls out. The ambulance comes, moves on. I think that is a much better description of what happens when the gospel hits somebody. In this moment, there was not like, a, oh, we'll just get back in the car and kind of drive off. There wasn't that. His car is totaled. I mean, you take the scrap metal to the, to the yard and you get $100 and you move on. I mean, this isn't like a, we'll just kind of rework this thing. This is a, everything has got to be thrown away and now everything is made new. And this is a picture of the gospel. This is what the gospel does to us. It's not a thing that we have this moment, we jump back in our car and we go off. The gospel is not that. The gospel hits with such force in a person's heart when they are saved that the whole thing changes. Everything is altered. 
It's a complete redirection of life. Their life has literally been totaled by... That is a picture of what the gospel does. Okay, now this is going to be really clearly seen in Acts chapter 8 and 9. And and this is where we're going. I want to try to explain the anatomy of conversion. Like what happens when God saves? It is a complete re-altering of life. It is not we go on as, as kind of life as normal. And listen, you and I say this all the time. You live in the most dangerous place in the world for a Christian to live. You live on the buckle of the Bible belt. That's what Dallas is. And in our culture, everyone's a Christian. The problem is nobody's a biblical one. Very few are biblical ones. And so, I mean, I think this could be a really important moment for you this morning to make sure your heart is in alignment with what the Bible would call a Christian. For you to see what what kind of this anatomy of a conversion is to make sure that has happened in your heart. Okay, so um, we're in Acts chapter, I'm going to start in Acts chapter 8 and point you to a couple of verses. Um, This is kind of where we're introduced to Saul. It's actually Acts chapter 7 where we're introduced. Stephen is falsely accused. Okay, he's going to be our first Christian martyr. And at the end of Acts chapter 7, um, Saul first kind of appears in the scriptures. And, And here's how he appears. He is on the peripheral of this group of people that have led Stephen outside of town, thrown him in this pit. He's on the peripheral edge of this thing, and and here's what happens. Um, They all, this group of people, they take their kind of outer coats off, and they're getting ready for baseball practice. They all throw them at the feet of of this guy named Saul. And then they literally take stones and beat the life out of Stephen. That's where we meet Paul. Okay, now in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, here's what it's going to say about him. And Saul approved of his execution. So this wasn't like, a, hey, guy, we can't do it. This isn't right. I mean, we're literally beating this guy up. What, what are we? It's not that. This is Saul saying, listen, I'm a joyful partaker of this. I approve of this. This isn't something that's going on against what I, this is, I approve of this. Okay, look at what it goes on to say. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So it, it, it's making this point of, there has now been a great persecution. This is not, man, I lost my job because I'm a believer. This is, I've just gotten thrown in prison because I love Jesus. I mean, this is a whole different realm of persecution here. Um, Verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. I think that's just there to make sure you stop and think about that. You just saw him get killed. And you know, it's really easy to read without thinking. But I mean, this guy, I mean, there's people that love him. There's family around him. This is some guy's son. Okay, and then look at verse 3. Paul becomes the central figure in this great persecution. But Saul was ravaging the church. In in, uh, Psalms 80, the same word for ravaging is used. And and here's what it's it's describing. A wild boar tearing up a vineyard. That's how it's used in in Psalms 80. And so Luke, the writer, he's wanting you to know right, right off the cuff here that this guy hates Jesus. He hates everything connected with Jesus. He is ravaging people. And then it's going to say this about him, that he's um, entering houses, dragging men and women off and throwing them in prison. Okay, now, it's really important as you read Scripture to read the white spaces in between words. Because in the white is where you get the images and the sounds, right? 
And so, like, this has images and sounds accompanied with this. This is a man being taken out of his home, a wife being taken out of his home, and not just taken out, but dragged out. And this is a man and his wife being thrown in prison. Who's got the kid? I don't know where the kid... I mean, this has sights and sounds that accompany that. Okay, now go on to Acts chapter 9 now, verse 1. And this is how it starts in Acts chapter 9. But Saul saw still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Okay, so this guy, his central aim in life is destroying Christianity. His central aim in life is stamping out everything that relates to Jesus. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if they found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay, now this is what's brutal about this, is this is not only a guy that hates Jesus and wants to put people in prison. This is a guy that's got the power to do it. He is gone and he's got the official letters that would give him Roman backing. He can go to Damascus, drag whoever he wants out, that belongs to, the, and he can bring them back, throw them and do whatever he wants. This guy is all, he is within the legal bounds here. In Acts 26, it's describing the same conversion experience. Um, it says that literally, and this is Paul describing, he says that uh, he was raging in fury against these people. Okay, this is the setting. And here's what I think Luke is wanting you to see, that this is a guy that is unlikely to be a Christian. This is a guy that is unlikely to be saved. Okay, now this is why I think this is in the Bible, because it wants to show you. I think it's maybe even building this tension. Could this guy really get it? Has this guy gone too far? Has this guy gone, I mean, is is he going to exhaust the grace of God here? I mean, has this guy gone so far off the ledge that he is beyond the saving power of our great king? Has he gone that far? Okay, skip down uh, 17 verses in Acts chapter 9. I want to give you the end of the story and then we'll pop back up. This is Acts 9 verse 20. Look at this verse. This is Saul breathing murderous threats, raging fury, hating it all. I'm putting people in prison. Central aim of his life is to destroy it. And then look at verse 20. And immediately he, Saul, now Paul, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Isn't that beautiful? That we have got the guy that hates it. 17 verses later, we have got the guy that is preaching it. And here's going to be the point, I think, of today. Our God saves even Saul's. Our God, he's not beyond the saving power of God. He hasn't exhausted the grace of God. Our God saves Even these kind of people. And how about this? Even us. Okay, so here's the question that we're going to try to answer over the next couple of minutes. How did this happen? Like, what's the anatomy of this? How does this work itself out? Okay, so jump back into verse 3 here. How does a guy go from, I hate it, to I'm preaching it? Persecuting it, to proclaiming it. Um, Verse 3. Now as he went on his way... He approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Verse four, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him. Here's, I think the point. 
He just had a collision. Jesus showed up on the road to Damascus. That's where salvation starts. That's where everything begins, is with God showing up and colliding with his people. And this isn't like a pat on the back. This is like, I have just run over him. This is like, I have just devastated him. This is like, I have just altered everything that he was. There is this collision that happens on the road to Damascus. He is walking down this road on his way to persecute, to drag off and imprison. And here's what I love about it. You've got this sudden collision out of nowhere. The sudden, I mean, Paul's not asking for it. He wasn't on this road to Damascus thinking, you know what? I wonder if I'm going to get saved today. This sudden collision. And not only is it sudden, how about this one? It's a sovereign collision. This thing is not by accident. You're, okay, if you're a believer in this room, it is not by accident. It is by sovereign design. So we are saved because the God of the Bible sovereignly and suddenly appears out of nowhere. He appears and collides in such a way that we are forever different. I mean, he brings such a force with him that everything is altered forever. Okay, that's the picture. Now, when you're thinking about this conversion experience, I think there's some things that are very abnormal and some things that are very normal. Here's abnormal. Um, Abnormal is flashing lights. I mean, a light out of heaven comes down on the road. That is abnormal. I'm a seventh grader sitting in an auditorium when I get saved. The only light I saw was from the balcony. All right, I mean, that was it. There was no flashing anything, right? And so that is totally abnormal. But here is what is normal. Every person that goes from persecutor to proclaimer has a sovereign collision that impacts them, that changes them. Um, This week, we were helping Mike Bazzini move down to Midlothian. And on the way, Bill Stewart was telling the story of his dad. His dad's 45 years old when all of a sudden Jesus collided, saves changes the man ends up planning a church 45 i mean that's that's a career change right there right okay um mike pazzini five or six years ago he's doing his own thing god sovereignly and suddenly collides okay that's the picture that is where it all begins okay now now here's the thing about um collisions when jesus collides he brings this sledgehammer with him amen And it's this sledgehammer called truth. And so when Jesus collides, he alters things with truth. And here's what that truth does to us. It begins to convict us. Okay, that's going to be your next word. Now, I want to show you how this happens here. In verse 4, watch what happens. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, that's the collision. Now, here comes the sledgehammer. Okay, here's the sledge. A voice is speaking, and here's the truth that he's bringing with it. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse five. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Okay, so so here's how this works for Paul. Paul is going down this road to Damascus. And here's what Paul's thinking. I am totally in the right. There's somebody wrong here. It's them and not me. I mean, this is the mindset. I mean, we have all been here. I mean, in his world, he is right. He is the one that is in the know. He is serving God. Listen, by going to Damascus and dragging people out and throwing them in prison, he is serving God and being obedient to God. That's his mindset. 
when all of a sudden this collision happens, the sledgehammer of truth crashes over his brain. Here's how it goes. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay, who are, who are you? I'm Jesus. Imagine that moment. You just found out you were playing for the wrong team, right? I mean, you just found out everything you've been doing in life was wrong. I mean, you just found out you are on the wrong side of the battle line. You just found out that you weren't dragging people off and putting them in prison. You were dragging Jesus off, God off, putting him in prison. God brings this collision This sledgehammer of truth cracks over his brain, bringing this serious, weighty conviction. I think in that moment, um, I I think if you were there, you could probably see a physical, um, just appearance change of Paul. I think it's this piercing blow that hit him right there. This sovereign weight that was laid over him. And listen, biblical conviction is not, man, I just feel sorry for this. God, I'm so sorry I got caught. They know about it. Dang. It's not that. Biblical conviction is a thousand pounds of weight being thrown over you and you can't get out from underneath it. That's biblical conviction. Okay, now, now let me say a couple of things here. Um, when you're biblically convicted, like when Jesus comes with truth and convicts us, it is a dangerous move on his part. Conviction is a dangerous gift from God for us. And here's why it's dangerous. Why don't you take a couple chapters back to Acts chapter 7. And and let me show you why this is dangerous and how this plays out in in these people's lives. Stephen, in in Acts chapter 6, it's saying that he is doing these amazing wonders and signs. They, They don't like it, so they falsely accuse him. And this is his moment to shine. He is before the, like the religious elite. And he's like, man, if I'm here, I'm gonna let them have it. I am bringing it if I get the chance. So he stands up and he gives a beautiful sermon. You ought to read it, Acts chapter 7. At the end of that sermon, um, let me show you what what happens. And and this is why I say it's dangerous, because biblical conviction can cause rage in people. It can cause us to rail against God if we're not real careful. Acts chapter 7, I'll just bring you down to the very end of it in verse 51. I mean, these are some straight up hard words from Stephen. Here's what he says. He looked at this group of religious people and says, you stiff-necked people. That's not a very friendly way to start, right? That's definitely not very seeker sensitive here. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. He hadn't gotten any softer. Okay, it gets worse. As your fathers did, so do you. Verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Who you have now betrayed and murdered. Verse 53, and you received the law as delivered by angels, but you did not keep it. He is bringing some serious truth here. That like a sledgehammer is pounding away, but listen to how they respond. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. Drag him out, throw him in a pit, and beat him to death with rocks. So it's a dangerous gift. When you hear hard words in your life, 
It's a dangerous gift because we've all got this little defendant in our heart that says, who are they to, to talk to us that way? Like, who is Jesus to say, what? We all have that little defendant in our heart. Okay, but let me give you another, another reaction to biblical conviction. Uh, let's go back to, to chapter 2 real quick. Real quick, let me read a couple of passages here to you. Um, this is Peter. He is preaching. Okay, he, this is the same people that crucified Jesus days earlier. Peter is preaching to the same crew that chanted crucify. And in verse 22, he stands up, he starts preaching to him. And listen to what he says, hard, hard words. In verse 22, he goes like this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Listen to this. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, losing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he's saying this, you know this Jesus? You crucified him. You did. Okay, and to make that point even more plain, he's gonna reiterate it in verse 36, skip on down there. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, he is the Lord. The Christ, and listen to this, this Jesus whom you crucified. Those are not easy words. Those are words that if you were there in that crowd, the defendant in us would say, let's kill him too. Let's get him as well. I mean, the defendant in us says, who is he to talk to us that way? How dare him do that? But listen to how these guys respond. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Biblical conviction, they were cut to the heart. And then listen to how they respond. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. That's what you do. So it's a dangerous gift. When God comes and collides, bringing truth with him, biblical conviction follows that. And you've got the response. Do I rage and rel against that or do I repent? Those are the options. Okay, and then let me show you what this leads to and then we'll wrap it up. It leads to conversion. That's what all this leads to. When God collides, brings truth, convicts us. Here's the hope. This is why it's a gift. It's dangerous because we can rel against it. But here's why it's a gift. Because it leads to conversion. You cannot be saved without conviction. You can't be saved without truth. You can't do it. It takes truth to get us there. Okay, so it leads to conversion. Here's what conversion is. Conversion is repentance and faith. Conversion is I'm turning from sin. That's repentance. And it's faith. I'm trusting in Jesus. I'm giving all of me to Jesus. I like to think of it this way. I'm joyfully submitting everything to Jesus. Listen, Jesus does not want partnerships with us. He wants ownership of us. Conversion is turning repentance and faith, giving all of us, allowing Jesus to become the owner of us. That's biblical conversion. That is the re-altering. 
Okay, now, now here's the thing with, with Paul in this passage. You don't see like a clear picture of, um, okay, this is exactly where he got saved. But I think you see it in between the white spaces between verse 5 and 6. Because you see after verse 6, this guy is a different man. When you are converted, listen to this. When you are converted, when God has saved us, it makes us a new person. We have been totaled. We do not get back in the, the vehicle of life and drive off the same. We are completely re-altered and different. Now watch how this plays out in, in Paul's life. Starting in verse 6. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. This is Acts chapter 9 verse 6. And, and Paul obe- obeys the voice. Okay, that's the first step here. He, he obeys. Verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and, all, and uh, although his eyes were open, open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. He was fasting. Okay, skip down to verse 18 here. And the unforget, unforgotten hero in this story is really Ananias. That'll be a different sermon for a different day. Verse 18. And immediately something like scales fell uh, fell from from Paul's eyes. And he regained his sight. And then listen to this. Then he rose and was baptized. Stop there and think for just a second. This is Saul, the Pharisee, coming to persecute believers. He stands up and publicly declares what has happened internally. In front of his Pharisee friends. I am saved. I am one of the persecuted now. I mean, this is a massive movement here. This is, I am just publicly declaring to the people I know will now want to kill me. This is a total change in friendships. This is a totally different life that he is now choosing. This is not how most of us are saved. Most of us are saved in an environment like this where people love you now. Saul's first moment when he got saved is people hate him now. Totally different Different example here. He's baptized. Verse 19. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with his disciples at Damascus. Verse 20. And suddenly he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God, the persecutor to the proclaimer. Verse 21. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? This man was radically altered. This is a picture of what it means to be saved. You go from this to that. You have a radical re-altering of what is central in your life. If I were to come up this morning and say, uh, and I would, let's say I would have walked up five minutes late. You sit here for five minutes in between the worship and the preaching. Where is Rodney? I walk in five minutes late. My hair's a little frizzled. Um, you can tell I'm a little disheveled. I walk up and say, listen, on the way I stepped off the curb and a Mack truck hit me. It was unbelievable. I mean, ran smooth over me. But it wasn't a big deal. I went in, put on a new pair of socks, comb my hair. I'm, I'm here. We're all right. You would look at me like, what are you talking about? I mean, is something wrong with you? Okay, now listen to me here. When you are saved, Jesus, bigger than a Mack truck, slams into, convicts with truth, converts, and we are drastically altered. We cannot be different after being hit by a Mack truck. And listen, we cannot be the same after being hit by Jesus. It can't do it. Okay, so let me rant for two minutes and then then we're done. If you said, what are our hopes here? Can I tell you what our hope is? That we expand 
Our hope is to grow the kingdom. I mean, we hope for that. I mean, we plead God that he would save people and do it often. Okay, but listen to this. But can I tell you that we hope for quality to support the quantity? That we want people actually saved by the gospel? We want people actually saved by Jesus? We want the number in the kingdom to actually grow with us? So we are not just going to ask one set of questions. We're going to ask the set of questions, is Jesus saving? Is it being demonstrated here? That comes first. We want to have a brand here that is worth spreading. Amen? We want biblical authenticity here that is worth reproducing. That's the hope. That's the hope. Why don't you pray with me? So that leaves us in a couple of places today. Um, Here's what's really dangerous about coming to church week in and week out with no expectation of changing. If you walk in and out of church on a weekly basis, no expectation of God, do something in me. God, make me different. It is so dangerous because listen, Jesus is a fork in the road for people. You can't meet Jesus and stay neutral. When you meet Jesus, you take one way or the other. The rich young ruler took the other. The Pharisees took the other. The disciples took Jesus. Paul took Jesus. So there is no neutral ground here this morning. You're going to walk out down one road. And can I plead with you this morning to walk down the road that has Jesus at the end of it. Invite good conviction in your life. Ask Jesus to show you where where do I need change? Where do I need a different way of living? Okay, so for some of us in this room, there has never been this step across the line of faith moment. There has never been this this first initial joyful submission where Jesus has collided, brought the truth of the gospel, that we are sinful people. And it's not just that we sin, but that we're sinful. We are sinful people in need of a righteous Savior, Jesus, who died on the cross to bear the wrath directed for us. Okay, so maybe Jesus is confronting with the truth of the gospel and our appropriate response would be repentance and faith. Maybe this morning for you needs to be a conversion moment, a moment where God makes new, where God totals and changes everything about you. And if that is you, here's what I want to encourage you to do. On that guest card, if you'll fill that out for us this morning, and you'll see a box on there that you can check how to establish a relationship with Jesus. So this is not a pressure-filled anything. But if you want to take that step, I want to encourage you to mark that box. I'll call you this week. We'll have coffee, and we'll talk through what that means and how that that looks. But, But here's the truth for a lot of us in here. There's a lot of mini conversions in life where God collides, breathes.
brings the truth can fix our heart and we have this fork in the road do I respond with repentance or walk away take the exit respond with repentance and if at this morning Jesus has spoken to you this needs to change this area has got to be different that is biblical grace flooding your heart respond with repentance so we're going to end by singing a song I'm going to pray over you and I just want to encourage you you can use this as an altar this morning up here if you like Um, we're just going to give you a couple minutes to respond you fill out that card check that box if you want to come up here and pray with your family you can do that God, you are so gracious to us in bringing what feels like a sledgehammer at times. But God, what we know to be grace, you're so gracious to us in convicting our heart when we sin and as we sin. You're so gracious in colliding with us and convicting us with the gospel, making salvation possible. The sudden and sovereign collision. So God, we we praise you for that this morning. God, I pray over uh, my friends in this room. God, I pray that um, you might bring that consistently into our life so that we might respond with repentance on a daily, a weekly, a monthly level. God, help us to be the right sort of people to spread. Help us to have the right conversion to duplicate. We pray all this in your beautiful name. Why don't you stand up with us as we sing?